0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Travis Stork Show. This is a podcast that has great meaning for me, and that is because the podcast today is with my friend, Carl Travis. And Carl, isn't anyone famous that you know? But I hope by the end of this episode, you'll realize that how famous someone is has nothing to do with the amount of wisdom they can share. So, um... Carl was the minister for my sister and brother-in-law and nieces in Texas. And years ago when I was going through a divorce and had pretty much isolated myself, wasn't really talking to anyone and just going through a tough time in my own headspace, My brother-in-law set up a meeting between Carl and myself because Carl had gone through a divorce as the head of a church in Texas and had experienced a lot of, I think, the emotions that anyone going through a divorce goes through, which isn't just how it impacts you, those that you love, in his case, his kids. But also, just how that looks to society, in his case as a minister, to his parishioners. And we talked a lot, or he, I should say, he had already been through his divorce. Um, Carl was happily remarried and really coached me up during a difficult time. And I hence became friends with Carl. And although I live in Tennessee and he's in Texas, anytime I would go visit my Sister and brother in law, uh, I would sit with Carl or occasionally just talk to Carl or text with Carl because Carl is a very insightful person. During my time with Carl, one of the things I realized is that he is a man who exemplifies courage and also incredible insight. And shortly after I met Carl, You know, Carl was in his late 40s and he started to develop some big blood clots, and they were happening all over his body. And he he just, no one could figure out what was going on. And those blood clots continued, eventually, major blood clots in his lungs, and still no real diagnosis in terms of why this was happening. And He was going all over trying to get a diagnosis and getting experimental treatments, surgeries. He ended up losing his foot and ultimately, because of all these blood clots, he developed something known as CTEF, which is chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Carl was basically told that he had less than a year to live and has been staring death in the face with incredible dignity, uh, incredible courage, and his insights on life are really only those that someone who is willing to face their own mortality can share. And I want you all to listen to Carl's words today and know that these are words that come from a man who has no ego, has no need to have an ego, but he talks a lot about important things that we all sometimes forget, and that is just the importance of kindness, um, the importance of thinking outside yourself. But I'd like to read a passage from a post from Carl's Caring Bridge site. It's called Loose Ends, and I'm going to read part of it. This was posted at the end of February, and this is a journal entry by Carl Travis. The hardest part of dying is the hunted hunch that I'm leaving loose ends that I don't have enough time to complete things, important things. If completion is life's goal, I am limping off the track miles before the finish line. I won't grow old and cranky with Jackie. I won't get to tease her as I lounge at the breakfast table that she's not old enough to retire, and I won't get to kiss her on the steps of the Acropolis, and I won't get to take care of her when she's ill, and we won't get to muse together about how longevity and wisdom somehow supplant even passion in time's alchemy. Loose ends. Nor will I get to see my kids' weddings. I won't share embarrassing childhood stories about them at their rehearsal dinners, and I won't wait in the lobby as they deliver their children, and I won't get to remember their baptisms as I baptize their kids, and I won't marvel at their talents in service to God's world. I won't get to talk to them through the transformations of the decades. Loose ends. And I won't know my grandchildren. I won't get to teach them wet willies and I will never laugh when they pee in the backyard and I won't smile mischievously and hand them back to their parents because I've grown tired of taking care of them. I will never read them bedtime stories or go to their soccer games or conspire to confront their parents about what they're doing wrong while appearing not to do so. I'm just enough self-possessed to think too that my grandchildren will be somewhat different for missing out on time with me. Loose Ends my counselor says that naming lost dreams helps us grieve them, and he's right. Though I am uncertain that this grief can be overcome, my life will conclude amidst loose ends. I will die incomplete. In this post, Carl ends it with, I'm still sad, of course, thinking about what I'm going to miss, thinking about those who might miss me. But they're going to be okay. God will see to it. As for me... The only thing bigger than my grief is my trust in God, and God isn't finished with me yet. And that's Carl's post, but that's also Carl in a nutshell. He is willing to talk about difficult things. He has uh he's a great personality and a great insight. But just a little bit into his illness, as you listen to this, you know, Carl is on 24-7 oxygen therapy. He gets winded quite easily. And even spending an hour of his day with me, I know was Um, well, something I really appreciate because Carl, you know, every day for Carl is, is his own personal adventure in his health. And I was blessed when I speak to him during this podcast for him to say, you know what? He's having a pretty good day, but his insights are insights that we all can take to heart. They're insights that especially when we all got introduced to the word coronavirus and COVID-19, how it made us all think about our own mortality, I think his words of wisdom apply now, maybe more than ever. So I hope you enjoy this podcast with my friend, Carl Travis, as he shares his perspective, not just on life, but nearing the end of life. Enjoy the podcast. How the hell are
1: you? Oh man, I'm hanging in. <clears throat> That's about what I can say right now, but it's both in the alternative. People say, "Man, it's good to see you." And I, I say, "Well, I prefer being seen to being viewed." Because you were telling me last week you had a had a rough go of it. Yeah, you know things go up and down, and when you wake up in the morning, you don't know what kind of day it's going to be, and you live day to day by that. By that, that's, that's a good lesson in and of itself, though. But you really do I- have to learn take every day on its own, on its own terms. And today's a pretty good day, so I like that.
0: Well, I hope it's a good day because we're getting the chance to talk.
1: Yeah, I've been looking forward to it. How are you doing?
0: Um, As you know what, it, it's hard it's hard to complain in life, and especially one of those things and one of the reasons why I'm excited to talk to you is you're someone who's always given me such great perspective on life. So I could, you know, I could sit here and say, hey, Carl, it's a stressful time because Paris is really worried about having a kid during all of this, you know, but I don't think we ever lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, and I've told her this, the the most important goal in all this is, you know, is, is your health. And I think that's something that you probably know better than anyone. Well,
1: I really, I really admire you guys moving in the midst of the COVID crackdown at the same time when she's pregnant, expecting your first child. My goodness, I know you didn't plan it that way, but I know that you're coming through it with full colors.
0: Well, yeah, it was certainly, I can tell you this, I think it gets back to life and rolling with the punches because you can plan everything perfectly and it doesn't work out that way. And it's something as simple as a log- logistics of a move. We were supposed to, you know, we were supposed to move back in January. But so we moved out of our old house, put everything in storage, and we thought it would be for a week or two. Of course, no no knowledge that that this novel coronavirus was going to reach our shores and do what it ended up doing and is doing. And then on top of that, literally midnight... The midnight before we were moving in, the mayor of Nashville ordered basically a lockdown, except for all non-essential services, which, you know, technically moving is, I guess, an essential service. But then you go through all those <sighs> and yeah. And so then we started to, we, and we had, you know, then our, our pipes flooded on top of it. So yeah. Paris is sitting here. You know, and and pe- the irony of it is that we had to move in because you can't, you can't, you can't have a baby living at a friend's house or living in a hotel. Definitely. <laughs>
1: Definitely. So well now, what did you do with Paris? Did Paris just self-isolate one corner of the room while the movers did their thing? How did you work that out?
0: Well, it's, it wasn't just movers, Carl, because of course when you move in like we didn't know this but we we closed and we come over to the house walk in the door and there's like six workers in the house Um, Um, and so yeah i pretty much took i told paris to kind of isolate over in you know over in one neck of the woods but it's just you know it's one of those things right now is one of those times where i think and why i'm so glad i get to talk to you because you do such a good job of putting everything in perspective And what's interesting is I think that, you know, you've always carried yourself with so much grace. And I think all of us as of late have felt maybe our own mortality a little bit, but no one has been forced to stare it in the face in the same way you have, because, you know, take something like as an ER doctor, a lot of times... You know this, you've spent way too many days in the hospital, but a lot of times people do not have a chance to think about their own mortality. They may they may be fine one day have a heart attack, show up in the ER having coded and and if we can't get their their heart beating again, they never have a chance to say goodbye. They never have a chance to think about what that means. But I think that this time in our society and why I'm so happy I'm talking to you is we're all thinking a little bit about what what would happen, what what does all of this mean? Because death is around every corner. It's just that most of us don't have to face it daily like you have. And, and I want you to maybe help, like help parse through. Because when I when I read your loose ends post, I was so moved by it because there's that concept of incomplete. And yet I know right. you, right. you always end things. You always end things on a positive, which is why you're one of the most amazing
1: people I've ever met. Well, you're very kind. I, I think you're speaking great wisdom. I think that this COVID virus has given people a real shakedown. And I mean by that kind of a spiritual shakedown because it is now time for people to think what really matters to me. Because the truth be told, when something like this comes in that's invisible and can be spread from just normal social contact, it really makes people stop and think. See, I had this enormous advantage. I began, about eight years ago now, my health began to fail. And when my health began to fail, it slowly crept in on me that that this might be a life-ending diagnosis. But see, I had all that time to adjust to it. And because I had all that time, time to get ready, it was time to get ready is an enormous gift. But the irony about having time to get ready is that it shows you the way you ought to have been living the whole time. (laughs) So so people, if they will take this moment and think through, what if I were given a year to live? How would I want to spend it? How would I be different? That's enormously powerful and life-giving. Because it changes your habits, it changes your thoughts, it changes your self-perception. How, and you can give me two different responses here, but I first and foremost want to say that I know you've been preparing
0: for this illness to take your life at some point. And yet, I want to ask you two things. And one is, how do you go through that exercise mentally and come out the other side of it the way you always do with grace, with the ability to impart more wisdom? But then, secondly, a more practical and pragmatic thing, which is, you have an illness that greatly affects your lungs. And here we are during this time when you're wanting to spend as much time as possible with those that you love. and. We're in social isolation and you in particular, when I've been doing podcasts, when this, when I started this podcast, just as the pandemic was announced, it was literally my first podcast, I literally taped it the day it was announced as a pandemic. And my first thought was, oh my gosh, what about those who are most vulnerable and everyone's thinking about those at an extreme age or, but I honestly, I thought of you because your lungs are, are, you know.
1: Yeah, I couldn't handle it. No. In fact, here's a crazy story. A dear friend was to come over. I've been very gifted. You, you won't believe. Travis, people are so good. People are intrinsically good given half a chance to be. And since I have been isolated, I can't get out very much because I, my, I have to have oxygen and the tanks that require that I have to to leave with only lasts about an hour at a time. So people come to me. So every single day I had friends who would come over and we'd just visit. Well, on the morning of the 18th, I had scheduled a visit with a dear friend and she texted that morning saying, I'm not feeling very well. I think it's just a cold, but let's play it safe. Turns out she had COVID. And had she come over, I would have been at a desk with her working on the same keyboard and the same mouse. And there is no doubt in my mind that would have contracted the virus. And so I've I've texted her and called her to thank her for her thoughtfulness and just saying, hey, you know, with social isolation stuff, it matters. And for people who are showing the slightest symptoms, they need to be careful around folks like me.
0: Well, I am I am for one extremely happy that she made that decision because I think this is one of those unique times in life where it's better to tell a friend that we can just hold off on meeting in person. And you know, much like we're doing now, I've I've been raising awareness of, just because there's social isolation doesn't mean you can't interact. And, you know, for for people who don't know this, I was was there in your house um, the last time we had a great conversation. And, you know, I'm first of all just so happy that you're, you know, I, I call it perseverance, but it's just for you, it's just living. Where where is your headspace, and where have since the last time we had such a deep, wonderful conversation? And again, every time I talk to you, I feel like I leave the conversation a better person and have a better understanding of life. But where where has your headspace been in terms of of your illness, your own mortality, since we last spoke? Well,
1: I think you could say it's full acceptance. But let me show you my shirt.
0: Oh, I love that so much. The shirt reads, I'm not dead yet, with an exclamation
1: point. And <laughs> remember the Monty Python? I'm not dead yet. Um, <laughs> uh, in the short, the short version of that, I finally come to my sentence. In every major transition of my life, it's taken me a while, but I have needed to come to a single sentence. And here's my single sentence. I'm completely at peace with what's happening to me but I'm in great turmoil about what's happening to my family. The weirdest thing I, I was told in 2012, after living through my first pulmonary embolism, that I was one of the luckiest people the ER doctor had ever known. And that began a course of thought for me about what giftedness there is and having time to prepare. And and throughout what, 18 thrombectomies, two open heart surgeries, a foot amputation, et cetera, et cetera. I've never had any fear, which is just pure gift because I never chose not to have fear. It was just pure gift. I'm really at peace with what's happening to me. But I'm I'm so concerned about what's happening to my family. And so then that changes your perspective because you want to wake up in the morning and you want to think, what can you do? I think to myself, what can I do? What's within my power? So that's pretty much life now. Just enjoying simple times and then making sure that I've done everything I can insofar as as their health and their well-being is concerned. And plus, you mentioned having read that loose ends post. I think it's really important to name the things that I'm going to miss, the experiences that I just simply won't have. But having named them, I don't have to dwell on them because if I do, I get melancholy, you know, you get, just get sad and I don't want to spend my final days completely sad all the time, but there really is enormous power in just saying, you know, I won't witness my daughter's weddings and that, that, that makes me sad. And Here's what I would have said had I been there. All of those things it's important to name and to share.
0: Can I say something though, Carl? Sure. And you can agree or disagree with this as a bunch of B.S. philosophical crap or not, but I mean this when I say it, because you you've been a profound influence in my life. You will be at your children's weddings. You every podcast I've had up until this point, you've been there with me. You are there because you are you have become a part of every single person who has entered your sphere because of the way you carry yourself and what I mean by that is a lot of times you know there's this phrase in life and we insert various people's names and if I'm in a mindset of I don't give a shit I will say what would so-and-so do and I'll pick a friend's name who seems yeah, not yeah, yeah. who just doesn't care about anyone else just <laughs> so if it's kind of that it's kind of that that mentality. Um, of who cares. But when I'm thinking about a topic that is important and meaningful, I will think to myself, what would Carl do? And then the beauty of it is since your last name is Travis, I can say, (laughs) what would Travis do? And it works. (laughs) So you, you live in me every single day. So you are there. You are there for all, no matter what.
1: You humble me. You know, I, I think that, these last years of, of dealing with debilitating death, have I mean, really changed me and for the better. And one of the things that's happened is that it's, it's, I don't know how else to, I don't know how to say this. And it seems paradoxical, but when you're dying, you don't focus on yourself. You really do. You find more other people more important. And so, you know, you go through those stages, you've got a year to live, which is what they told me in November of 18. And, yeah, here I am. So I went about and did everything you're supposed to do. I made sure all my 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 durable power of attorney was signed. My will was complete. All my life insurance policy was taken care of. All of those things, you know, just making sure that I'd crossed the crossed the t's and dotted the i's. But what I discovered was that I just found myself more and more interested in the well being of other people. It uh, it's remarkable how that helped keep me centered. Off of myself. And and then I, I used to think to myself, one of my little voices in my head was never be an asshole. And of course, that's just a good role in life, isn't it? Don't be an asshole. But then I found myself thinking, don't even be an asshole in your head. You know, the little thoughts you have about others where you rush mm-hmm. to judgment or you're, you're curt, even in your own head. Taking that discipline internally and saying, hey, don't even do it in your head. Don't even let yourself think those things. It's been remarkable how I've come to see people in a better light when I'm just kind of taking them off the hooks of my internal judgment. People are so good, Travis. People are so good.
0: Can, can, Can I ask you, Carl, how you accomplish that? Because as you say those words about don't even think about being an asshole in your head we're all guilty of that. Heck, I'm guilty of that. We're all guilty of at times rushing to judgment. How did you get to a place where even in your own head, you, you maybe quashed that internal voice that either rushes to judgment or gets angry or thinks to themselves, wow, what an asshole over there.
1: You know, I think, and I still do it, don't get me wrong. It's a, it's a lifelong pursuit. I've just found that, that bad health has made it a little bit more possible but I think asking myself what's happened to that person that's made her or him the way they are, and to practice empathy before judgment. You know, there's a difference between explanation and excuse. Uh, I uh, somebody can do something that's terrible that can't be excused, but it can sure be explained, depending on what's happened to them in their lives, and if you. Explain things in your head uh, on behalf of others. It's amazing how much antipathy and judgment dissipates. It just goes away. You know, life's too short always to be angry and curt with people, even in your head. It's just too short. We're meant to be here and enjoy one another in community and friendship.
0: If you had the chance to think forward to, we talked about this last time I saw you, um, I know how important being a father is for you. And I know how important being a husband is. What? And and I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I, I was, I'll be honest, selfishly, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you today is because what you say is always meaningful. And so, and I take those lessons to heart and I hope everyone else does too, because you have, if I have a little bit of wisdom being 48 now and having gone through plenty yeah, of hiccups right. and stumbles yeah. and falling on my face, you have an immense amount of wisdom. And I think part of that is because you look as a, as a minister, you had to learn how to empathize with all different perspectives with, um, you going through a right, divorce right. midlife. um. And and I, I, I've told people that you helped me through my divorce, but then getting remarried and being at this place now where, I mean, I don't know if you think about it in terms of legacy um, or if you think about it in terms of lessons that you leave, or you just think of it in terms of how you want to be remembered, but what in your own headspace, or even what would you say, what do you want your kids to know? For instance, let's just say it's 10 years from now. And, you know, a lot, a lot can happen in 10 years, no one really knows, but it, it like, what, what would you want them to know,
1: sort of regardless of what happens over the next decade? Yeah, what a great question because you can't help but think about legacy in my situation. And I've been given a great gift because, you know, most people don't start thinking about legacy until they're in their seventies and eighties. I got to do it in my fifties. There are some advantages to doing it in my fifties. It has nothing to do with material blessings and how much I've left or it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the type of character that I have modeled. And I suppose that 10 years, if someone said to one of my children, tell me about your father, the sentence I would most hope they would offer would be, he was kind. He was a kind man. That's, that's what I would most prefer. Now, there are commitments that I've made that I hope that they will pick up on. I've always cared a great deal about people who experience homelessness and I hope that they contribute themselves to efforts to alleviate homelessness. And I hope they take their religious faith seriously. But you know what? Above all of that, really, I hope they'll just say he was a kind man. So you're,
0: you're a spiritual,
1: spiritual person. Indeed.
0: And I know you've leaned on that. And so I've had a theory in life from probably the first time I really started thinking about what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be religious? What does it mean to be a good person? And what does it mean if your goal in life is to live a good life? And then at the end of your life, if you're on your deathbed and you know that you're about to die, is your number one goal to go to a higher place or is it to look in the mirror and say, you know what? I was a a good person. I was a good man. I was a kind man, a kind woman. I'm curious because we've had deep discussions on this front cuz we tend to do that but <laughs> you know one of the things I getting back to non-judgment and I've always respected this about you is you don't you've never forced anyone down your particular path and you were you you were the minister for my sister and brother-in-law and nieces and that's how I got to know you back when I was going through my divorce and you, you were my counselor, you were my friend, um, but above all else, you were kind to me during a time when I had holed up and wasn't really talking about anything of substance with anyone else. I remember well. But when you, when you start thinking about these profound things that it's hard to wrap your head around and it's, it really does center around death, and what happens to us when we die? Can you talk to me a little bit about what that looks like from your perspective, going beyond the simple, well, if you believe in God, you go to heaven? Because that's something I've always had trouble wrapping my head around, which is, is it, you know, regardless of what religion you are, regardless of what continent you live on, regardless of how old you are when you die, Regardless of all of these circumstances, I feel like if you live a kind life, that whatever judgment comes, whatever happens to you when when this life is done, then you've done all that you can do on this earth if you carry yourself with kindness. What are your thoughts on that and sort of this oh, I, I don't know I, I don't I don't know that enough people view life in that in those terms, or maybe they nowadays maybe it's you know what it's Machiavellian it's just The ends justify the means, whatever you've got to do. Kindness doesn't matter. In fact, kindness is weakness. A lot of people consider kindness weakness.
1: Yeah, I think there are about a thousand questions in that. But the most important thing is not to fall into the trap of thinking about God as a cosmic Santa Claus. Who will save me if I just think the right things or do the right things because the news is so much better than that? God is love, and the thing about about love is that love is all accepting. You can't disappoint God because disappointment presumes surprise. God already knows everything I will ever do or leave undone, and has already said that God loves me, so all I can do is to say. I want to live my life in a way that pleases the giver. And so this notion that if I believe the right things or do the right things or say the right doctrinal formulations, then I'll get into this magical place called heaven when I die is to use God as a sugar daddy. And God is so much more pure than that. So on my deathbed, I'm not going to be worried about that. In fact, people will be surprised, but People ask me, are you going to heaven? And my response is, I have no idea, but I do know that whatever God has planned next is good and that God can be trusted. But the moment I start striving to extinguish God's anger at me or to make God more pleased with me than God has already promised to be, then I fall into that trap. It's all about echoing refining, funneling the love we feel from God into our relationship with others. So people who think kindness is weakness, well, good luck to you. Good luck to you, it'll last a while. But at the end of the day, you'll have your own deathbed questions if that's been your primary character.
0: You know that sometimes you toe the line with what we would call agnosticism, and that is that God is unknowable. And I think it's something that I don't want to get into religion because I think it's such a complicated topic. But, you know, those views are so profound because they fit within still your your very religious man. And yet being willing to say, I don't know is really powerful and maybe it's not. Well, the thing, it sounds like you have made that a very reassuring thing for you when you stared death in the face and you, you know, your, your time on earth is nearing an end. it seems like you've come to a place of complete peace without defining what's going to happen to you knowing that you don't know, but that you trust?
1: I trust. Because you, you
0: don't know. We don't know, right? I mean, it's, it's like no one knows for sure anything. No one knows for sure what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes, much
1: less after we die. I completely agree. It's all about trust. It's all about trust and who you trust and why trust matters. I mentioned having had a couple of open-heart surgeries. The morning of the first open-heart surgery, the anesthesiologist came in into the prep room and, you know, he's giving me the spiel about what's about to happen. And, uh, and then he said, you know, after he finished the spiel, and then he said, Mr. Travis, you're in God's hands now. And he made the motion of washing his hands. Well, I thought that was kind of a crazy thing to do, but I had no idea what he meant by it. Well, my friend Steve is my heart surgeon And he told me months later that that same anesthesiologist had just prior to that gone into the operating room and told the scrub nurse to put those tools away because we're not doing this surgery because these patients always die. And the scrub nurse had gone to Steve and said, should I put these away? He said, no, no, we're going to do this surgery. Well, here I am years later. But the anesthesiologist was literally washing his hands (laughs) saying, I think you're going to die, but I'll do my part anyway. I've laughed about that a thousand times because I never had any fear. I did not will myself into existence. I cannot will myself into existence after I die. It's all about trusting the goodness of, of God and everything is going to be okay because God's love is steadfast. I've never, I have complete trust in that. Now, there's pain involved, and there's anguish involved, and I wish things were different. and Oh, wow, I'm going to miss my wife and children and family. But they'll be okay. God will see to it. Now, I can give you doctrinal formulations. You know, I'm pretty well educated in this stuff. But at the end of the day, you've used the word. It's called trust.
0: Is that how you deal with uncertainty, too? Because I think back to, I remember visiting you at the University of North Carolina hospitals when I was, I was in Durham visiting my alma mater, Duke, and I made that treacherous drive eight miles down the road to my, my rival university where, you know, unfortunately you, you were in the hospital is the doctors were really trying to figure out what was going on with you because you had such a unique case. And I highlighted in the opening a little bit of what you've been through, but just the, the hardest part for me in terms of seeing you in that hospital bed was that at that point in time, nobody, still nobody really knew what was going on. And I, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about uncertainty and dealing with uncertainty because sometimes certainty is easier. And you've been, you know, for years now, you've, you've been living with uncertainty. Um, you even just talked about a, I think it was around a year and a half ago when your doctor said, okay, no more, you have no more at some point said one, one year max, Carl, like get your affairs in order. How, how have you dealt with uncertainty? What, what advice can you share when you're, especially when the
1: uncertainty surrounds your health and your life? Yeah, this is a huge topic, Travis, because, I have dealt with uncertainty differently than my wife has. My wife is just absolutely amazing. She has been my rock and my advocate and my friend and my caregiver. She's absolutely remarkable. She's also tenacious as hell. I mean, my goodness. She has gone, well, she has saved my life at least two times because she refuses to deal with uncertainty. If a doctor doesn't know, she just says, keep going, keep going, keep going. I have been more a, well, we can't be certain, so we must just accept. And she has not been willing to accept. And so you see in both of our mindsets, really opposing kind of emotional structures, and neither of us is wrong. We are in good partnership in this. Because neither of us is wrong. The way I have dealt with it, though, is is that my hope has very little to do with a cure. My hope is eternity and love. And because I think my eyes are so far set on the horizon that I have not concentrated on staying alive at all costs. There are worse things than death. I have sat with far too many parishioners who have extended their lives beyond what nature would have otherwise allowed and wondered why in the world they let themselves suffer so. There are worse things than death. But thanks be to God, I must say, Jackie has dealt with uncertainty by being unwilling to accept it. And, you know, we still don't know what's caused all of this. We still have no idea about the underlying blood clotting disorder. We just don't know. Because this all started,
0: I mean, it, not to dwell on your medical past, but all started with some blood clots that came out of nowhere. And at that time, when they the blood clots first started, you were how old?
1: 48. I was your age.
0: And I remember this so vividly because, you know, I I remember talking about, you you were excited about biking more and, you know, really the sort of typical things that someone at the age of 48 is thinking about. Okay. Midlife. I've, I I'm married to the woman. I love Jackie. Your kids are, they're growing and you're all about, okay, I want to get in really good shape. I'm excited to get on my bike more this year. And then these clots start and all of a sudden It becomes a journey of anguish because no one knew what was going on. And you kept getting the clots, and then eventually, of course, involved your lungs. Now you're dealing with, again, I introduced the CTEF without going into the details, so much uncertainty. But the one thing that I wanted to highlight from sort of the medical side, I love that you're so accepting, but I love the fact that your wife, Jackie, is not accepting because. You would be the first to say that in medicine, a lot of times we throw shit against a wall and hope it sticks. But you actually,
1: you did find a treatment
0: that has helped you.
1: Yes, yes, and because of Jackie's persistence, because of Jackie's persistence, you know, I went to the Mayo Clinic, I kind of went to the University of North Carolina, and had a failed experimental surgery that cost me my foot, and uh, and then continued to use. I've been through every anticoagulant on the shelf, you know, nothing. Seem to have worked until we finally settled on one. So we at least think that the clots are at bay. Of course, now the damage is so pronounced that there's no going back. But well, one thing about this, Travis, I want to thank you and your and your medical friends. I had no idea before this just how committed medical doctors and staff and technicians are. You guys are amazing. The hours that you spend and the care that you give, and the complexity that you face. And people expect the easy answers and quick cures. And it's not always in the cards. And I I have come away from this experience with an enormous sense of respect for medical people. Thank you.
0: Well, I'll say thank you for saying that, Carl. And I'll say thank you primarily for all of my colleagues because one of the things that I've never wanted to dwell on but what's somewhat beautiful about a podcast is you can really talk about topics that maybe you don't expect to talk about and the one thing that you've seen firsthand is even when your healthcare providers didn't always have the answers and I'm not not everyone but by and large I've never been around a more committed group of people than the people I've worked with in the hospitals I've been Privileged to be a part of during my career, and you know, not to not to throw stones, but you know, I've done a lot of different things in my life.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I was an actual yeah.
0: scientist before I decided to go to medical school, become a doctor. I've obviously been blessed to to be able to write a few books, host a television show, this podcast, and the one thing I will say that people people in medicine don't get enough credit for is they're look that we always say C equals MD so there are there are some people out there in medicine who don't who aren't great that's just part of anything but i feel such a need nowadays to defend the doctors and nurses and techs especially during a time like this because it's a pretty thankless job for those if you think about those who are committed to their craft in medicine, they spend many times, and I even think back to when I was in residency, I would, I would work 36-hour shifts because back then there were no hour limits, and I would be in the ICU sometimes from 5 a.m. until 5 p.m. the following day. My and, word. And, and then you would go home and you would chug a cup of coffee, maybe try to get a quick run, run in, and then I would read because i needed to I needed to learn how to save these lives, and I was very committed to that, and obviously, I'm in a different place in my life now where i'm you know hopefully I actually have some wisdom, but not I don't know that enough people when given the chance recognize the amount of effort you can't in medicine, if you mess up, someone dies and I've now been a part of a lot of different fields of work and again, not to belittle one or the other, but mistakes are made all the time. And it's just like, oh, no big deal. But in medicine, I feel like everyone's kind of waiting for the doctor or nurse or someone to make the mistake. And I'll say it, you know, a lot lot of burnout out there because people are practicing in fear, not only for their own times like COVID-19, their own health, but It's really since I started practicing medicine, since I've, you know, it's been over 20 years since I went into the medical field. And back in the beginning, I was fearless and so committed and didn't think about things like, oh my gosh, if someone dies, even if it's not my fault someone might try to sue me. <laughs> or right, right. My, And my point is that your, your experience through this healthcare system could have, you could have come out with a very different perspective. You could have said, you know, what they couldn't figure it out. I spent years and years trying to get a diagnosis. I lost my foot because of a failed experimental surgery. This doctor who was about to operate on me basically told me I have no chance. Screw, screw doctors, screw nurses, screw all these, you know, and I think the fact that you, even in your one of your posts that I did not read, you literally said you know more doctors than friends.
1: <laughs> I've joked about that—that that I have more, more more doctors than friends. I see my experience has been overwhelmingly positive, and the doctor—I have no doubt there have been mistakes made. There's no doubt in my case, but in the end, doctors are human beings. Our level of expectation has just simply become unreasonable. A couple of story, doctor stories. And again, I have have tons of these stories, Travis. But the doctor who amputated my foot did so, did the surgery on his 60th birthday. I woke up at 3 in the morning. He was at the foot of my bed. He had come in to see that I was okay on his 60th birthday, 3 a.m. in the morning. I have doctors, and this is a simple touch. Now, you might just because of the complexity of my case, I've dealt with some people who are very well respected in their field, especially hematology. And they've not been haughty, they've not been arrogant, they've been selfless and loving and caring. But despite all of their professional credentials, you know what really has made the most difference? It's been those occasions when a doctor would put her or his hand on my shoulder in a hospital bed and say, I'm really sorry this is happening to you. That did more to cement the relationship with my doctors. I mean, I'm on 1st name relationship with all my doctors now. They're just good people and nurses too. Oh my goodness, nurses are the backbone of the whole system. I can't say enough. I cannot say enough. And I would say this to uh, to church members as they would go into the hospital, check your expectations, man. The Medicine is science, but really it's more art. So thank you to you and all your friends who are willing to risk yourself in that way. Because let me tell you, I've had years of life I wouldn't have had simply because you kept at me.
0: Well, I would just add much respect to, all healthcare providers out there because the one thing that I do have and have been blessed to have received really is a voice. And I think a lot of people in healthcare don't really feel like they necessarily have a voice, but I will say this, and this is for anyone listening. You talked about, uh, uh, whether it be a nurse or doctor, putting their hand on your shoulder and saying, that they are sorry for you, but also reassuring that they're doing everything they can. Let's get back to kindness. When I visited you in the hospital, what you don't know is that the people caring for you were champions for you, partly because you are a man who lives by your creed of kindness. And it's in a world where, we can be short with one another. And I think it's always a nice reminder that kindness goes a long way. It was quite remarkable to see how happy, for instance, your nurses were to care for you because that just pays dividends both ways. And you being appreciative, you know, the lessons here again, for anyone listening is let's just, let's just take your nurse on a given day. He or she For all, for all, if you're in the hospital, for all you know, that morning they could have found out that their mom or dad died, and they're gonna, they're still gonna come to work and they're going to do their best. And when you show them kindness, they're able to return that favor. And I think that is that kindness maybe resonates more in a hospital than anywhere else because it is life and death. And and people, it's interesting because in the hospital, and not to get too profound on this topic, but you know I've always I, I've always lived in this dichotomy and being an ER doctor has colored my every perspective. You know in the hospital when things are life and death I very rarely blow up in life but I'll I'll never forget a time when I was uh, someone was coding and I was in the trauma bay and I was trying to intubate a patient Carl and they someone handed me the wrong endotracheal tube the wrong size and they and it was it was the raw it was too big for this person's airway. It was not what I asked for, and I I will never forget because this is I remember flinging that ET tube across the room because my I was short. I, my tensions were up. in In today's world, especially when you're thinking about when coronavirus first came about and the pandemic reached American shores. It's almost as though the entire country became a hospital. Meaning we were all acutely aware, not only of our mortality, but we were all caring for one another. We were all, we were in an, everyone's home, everyone's environment, everyone's community was unsafe. Not unlike a hospital. A hospital is a, it can be an unsafe place for everyone. It's, you know, you, you, uh, I'll never forget the first time in, surgery when a needle slipped and went into my hand and I'm like, oh shit. I've got to go to the occupational health office now and and get blood. And 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 my point there is only that your lessons resonate with me so much because I sometimes forget the 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 kindness. That's that's the key. Like right now we're all we're all living in this pandemic and we we can be short with one another in hospitals across America and the world right now. People are probably at times short with one another because we're frustrated, we're scared. But if we all remember just that one simple word of kindness and do what you do, which is if someone is short with you, instead of just getting angry back, you probably think to yourself, you know what, they're probably short because they haven't slept in two days. And they were exposed to someone yesterday who has COVID-19.
1: That's a perfect illustration. You just can't know what's going on in someone else's life. I made it a little discipline. And as you know, I was in the hospital for long periods. At one point, I was in the hospital for about three months out of a five-month period. And I tried, my goal was to never let a nurse who had taken care of me go off shift. You know how they always come into your room and introduce you to the next shift and make sure that the next nurse knows what your story is. I never wanted that exchange to happen without my saying to the nurse, thank you for taking care of me. And it was interesting to me, the reactions because I don't know that nurses are thanked that often. And the same with doctors, I would just simply say as I was leaving the hospital, you know, thank you for taking care of me. I really appreciate that. Goes a million miles Uh, And, of course, it has to be authentic. If you don't feel it, don't say it. But I have felt it, and I I tell you, medical professionals have become my heroes. The other thing about doctors, and I'll never forget a moment with a hematologist, a very well-known hematologist who had done everything that he could to figure out what was going on. We couldn't figure out my clotting disorder. I had already been to two other major research centers looking for an answer. And he said to me, not only I'm sorry that I can't fix this, but he said, I don't know. I don't understand what's going on. And I felt like that was such an admission of human humanity that he has endeared himself to me forever. He said, I'm sorry, I can't fix this. I don't know what's going on. I don't know, and I'm sorry. Wow, Wouldn't wouldn't you hope that all human relationships could be that honest? I don't know and I'm sorry. And uh, of course, I don't want that against him because nobody knows. I've I've, I've, I've been hither and yon looking for explanations. So that's what I say to you. You know, I've had a different response than my wife has. The uncertainty of not knowing what's caused all this, for me, it's sort of, eh, we tried. We did our best. Nobody knows, some things are mysterious. And the best thing to do is get up every morning and live life like you mean it and enjoy the people around you and be kind, make it more complicated than it will be.
0: Well, I, I appreciate every piece of wisdom you've ever shared with me. And selfishly, I wanted you to share your wisdom with as many people in the world as possible, because I think you're open-minded in a way that is very unique. I think your wisdom was already great at the age of 48 when this all started, but you have wisdom now that only staring death in the face can give you. And I, I'm going to take these lessons to heart. I hope everyone listening will take these to heart and we can all be a little bit kinder to one another. You don't have to be perfect, right? (laughs) And
1: and nobody is. Nobody is. And Travis, I want to say to you too, I cannot wait to hear about your first child. And because, you know, in my stead, in my situation, so many conversations feel like goodbyes. In fact, it's really one of the more comical things I wrestled with whether to tell people that this was a life-ending diagnosis because it makes some people uncomfortable. So, you know, I would tell people I, there was in my situation, though, I had to leave work and I had a large church and I needed to be honest with them. So I told them the truth. But it's hilarious because I see people sometimes now and I, I think that they're thinking, I've already said goodbye to you. Why come you're not dead yet? <laughs> so you never know. My father and I joke when we say goodbye to one another. <clears throat> about how many times we've said goodbye to one another. But I do want, because I don't know how much longer I have, to say you've been a good friend. And I want to thank you for being my friend.
0: Carl, thank you for being my friend. And thank you for teaching me lessons that I didn't even know I needed to be taught. And I would also just say this, because the last time I saw you, that... Part of that, I'll I'll admit it when I left your house, I didn't know if I would ever talk to you again. But but I've learned something since then. Yeah. Yeah. You are also a great example of why what's your shirt say? I'm not dead yet. <laughs> That's right. And you might as well live that way. But I, I would just I would literally leave you with this thought. And I and this is something that occurred to me when I was thinking about our conversation today. I don't have to say goodbye to you. You want to know why? No matter what. Why is that? You literally are with me every single day of my life. Well, you're kind and I'm very honored. Thank you. So I will say until next time. And also when you pop in my head tonight, when I go to bed and I'm like, gosh, darn it, I should have been nicer to that person. Carl would be upset with me. (laughs) You're with me then. I won't text you every time to tell you, but I uh, I love you brother and tell Jackie and the kids I said hello and this isn't a goodbye, my friend. This is a, I'll talk to you later.
1: Peace and grace to you and yours until Paris. I hope that she has a wonderful day of liberation very soon.
0: All right, Carl. Be well, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey everyone. I just wanted to give a little update on Carl. That interview took place last week, and this week, Carl has had a setback with his health, and I hope he's listening right now, and I thought maybe it would be appropriate if everyone listening would just take a moment to say a prayer for Carl, as well as, obviously, anyone else out there that you have in your thoughts and minds, and you can say that prayer to to God, because as Carl said, God is good. Whether you think God is unknowable or however you define god and that presence in your life whatever spirituality means to you i know i'm saying a prayer for carl tonight i hope you all will as well and carl if you're listening i love you brother and we're thinking about you i hope you enjoyed listening do not forget to subscribe and download and tell your friends i would love to build this community and Continue to be all about authenticity optimism and hope looking forward to the next podcast we'll see you soon the travis stork show podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended as a replacement or substitution for any professional medical financial legal or other advice diagnosis or treatment this podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine or any other professional service The use of any information provided during this podcast is at the listener's own risk. For medical or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician or other trained professional.